Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is a glorious day here in Massachusetts. Summer is finally here. It's so nice that I actually contemplated moving all of my equipment outside to do the podcast from there, but I decided it might be a little too noisy. So I'm not doing that. But you might think, well, summer, perfect time. Go to the beach, go get some ice cream, do a cookout. Actually, it is the perfect time to be thinking about college. You may not want to, but now is the time. Uh, And you have lots of questions. We have lots of answers. So we're going to do a bunch of listener um, answers to your questions today. But before then, um, I wanted to toss out the idea, and I know that there are a number of you thinking about going to college, not necessarily in the United States. I think a lot of people are focused on going to school in the United States, but our neighbor to the north, Canada, has a lot of amazing options that some of you may already be considering or may not have thought about. And so my colleague, Lauren Randall, who is a former admissions officer at Georgetown and also a former college counselor at the Canadian International School in Hong Kong, uh, is going to join us today to talk about schools in Canada. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. Well, thanks so much for being here today. And you do have this very unique perspective, having worked in a school that was an international school affiliated with Canada. Um, And so I think my first question for you is, why consider Canada when, you know, you're thinking about college, there are lots of schools here in the United States, why Canada? Sure. Um, and it, it is a, a, bit of a, a bit of a funny background that I was working in Hong Kong, but at a Canadian school. But it, that took me a little bit by surprise that so many international students were looking at Canada. I thought I was going there to, you know, be the U.S. guru. Um, but I quickly learned that Canada is a really popular destination for international applicants, including from the U.S. Um, and I think a reason f- that it's so appealing for international applicants um, is that Canada ranks among the most multinational countries in the world. I think that's really cool. They have a national policy for multiculturalism. So I think people are really respected there and feel that way. Um, I think many people would consider Canada a safe place to live and study. Um, So particularly for U.S. students, I, I think that it's appealing because or they should consider it because it probably wouldn't feel quite as foreign um, as perhaps some other international locations. And maybe the travel home isn't quite so far. Uh, You know, the majority of the universities in Canada are actually situated along the U.S.-Canadian border. So there's, you know, a a bit of um, familiarity with it. But let's not forget that Canada has internationally recognized research institutions. If you look beyond just the U.S. uh, world Mm -hmm. report rankings, if you look at international rankings, Canadian universities are are all over them. Um, So the value and the prestige of your degree will, will really go with you. 
I mean, yeah, exactly. All really great um, things to consider. I will frequently have students who maybe weren't considered, maybe they're thinking, oh, I'd love to go somewhere um, other than in the U.S. or they're finding themselves less excited about some of the options we're talking about. And then we toss in a few um, in Canada, especially my students, um, what I have found, and this is a very small sample size, but you know, maybe they're looking for something a little more cosmopolitan and going to school in a place like Montreal or Toronto sounds a little bit more exciting um, and maybe, and rightly or wrongly, a little less daunting than going to school in, say, New York City, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, certainly a cosmopolitan place. So I think it's a great, Um, country to consider. And there are so many options there. One thing that I did want to ask you, though, is um, what do you see as the differences, if any, between uh, universities in the U.S. and in Canada? Sure. Well, first of all, I think that there are a lot of similarities. First of all, it's it's four years of study. um, And Students will either begin in a structured program like they do here in something like business or engineering, uh, a program or a college uh, within the larger university that's much more structured so they can declare that, but they could also take their time to decide on a major within the first two years like like a lot of students do in the U.S. So um, either approach is okay. It, it's, it's not like the U.K. where you must know from day one necessarily exactly what you want to study, um, and you'll study nothing else but that topic. Um, so I think there's a lot of similarities between the U.S. and Canada. Um, but if we're looking at some differences or some comparisons... Canadian universities are definitely considered large by U.S. standards. The small liberal arts college is few and far between in Canada. Um, And they're a lot less residential in nature. Um, But most universities in Canada do guarantee first-year housing at least. Um, But you're you're less likely to get that kind of rah-rah feeling at Canadian universities Mm -hmm. where everyone is wearing a, a school logo sweatshirt. But... You know, uh, if we if we say, well, so maybe there's not that rah-rah feeling, but you know what a lot of students in the U.S. tell me that when they're looking for a university, some of the most important things that they are considering are um, internships or co-ops, and that's where Canada is awesome. They pioneered the co-op program. It started there. So you, uh, many, many programs or universities will set it up where you spend one term on campus and that's followed by another term working full-time um, at a job that's related to their field of study, really getting that professional experience. And better yet, these are often paid positions, even for international students. Um, and one more point to consider after graduation, international students are el- eligible to, to stay and work in Canada for three years. And that doesn't even matter if they have a, 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 a job off at that point. They can stay there for three years. So that really expands the options for job opportunities because now students have two countries to consider, Canada and their own, um, for, yeah. for employment opportunities, which is pretty cool. That and is really cool. And I didn't know anything about the co-op. So I, I know you're, there are a few more that you have, but that is a super interesting um, thing. So if you're considering co-op programs here in the U.S., then Canada would be a place to expand your searching to. I like Absolutely. it. Yeah, and going along with, so a lot of times they're interested in co-op because of that professional experience, but also maybe as a way to help um, fund their education a bit if those are paid 
positions. Um, So let's talk about paying money. Um, I think a big difference or a big point of comparison is just the value of of a Canadian um, uh, Canadian education. The tuition and cost of living in Canada is just considerably cheaper than it is in the U.S., even for international students. Um, Now, that's not to say it's going to be cheaper than your in-state public option, but it could certainly be cheaper than any private school option or um, out-of-state public for you, perhaps. Um, Now, a big difference here. Need-based financial aid for U.S. citizens, that's definitely not the norm, and it's not typically offered for, um, for U.S. students studying in Canada. But Canadian universities can be really generous in awarding credit for AP or IB exams, and merit-based scholarships are now, is now pretty much commonplace. So there's a lot of opportunity to bring down that cost um, by, by considering some Canadian universities. Interesting. So some some really good differences and also some really compelling reasons why you might want to um, check out colleges in Canada. And I think probably the next question for everyone out there is, okay, well, where do I go to learn more? What are um, what are some schools to consider? And, and especially, I think, beyond the ones that I, you know, and these may be very good schools to consider, but the ones that come up probably most frequently in my meetings with students are McGill and maybe University of Toronto, but there are so many others. Um, so what are some that come to mind for you and also places where you can go to learn about learn more about those? Yeah. So let's definitely start where, where every student needs to start. Um, there is such a great guide um, that's free online. It's called McLean's, M-A-C-L-E-A-N-S. M-A-C-L-E-A-N-S, and they have a university guide that is fantastic. So if you want rankings on top colleges, but maybe you didn't realize that they also have rankings for top um, reputation this year at the University of Toronto, uh, or top student satisfaction. If you've never heard of Bishop's University, um, they're leading their rankings for student satisfaction. Um, So that's a great place to get overview, but the reason I absolutely love McLean's is that you can build your own rankings. And I don't know why we don't have this kind of tool in the U.S. We should, um, because what mm-hmm. is the point of rankings if it's not tailored to your own metrics? Um, mm-hmm. you know, but I digress. Anyway, McLean's, you can set the parameters, uh, your own parameters, for qualities like uh, studious classmates or access to instructors or uh, even great food. You can set how important these things are to you, and it will build your own rankings of all the colleges um, or universities in in Canada. So that is so cool. So that is a great place to start just to get an overview. Um, But then you need to dig a little bit deeper into the programs of study. Once you narrow it down um, or or have at least an initial kind of idea of schools that you should be considering based on your metrics, um, there's a couple other great websites for all colleges in Ontario and there's a lot of, of universities in Ontario. Um, there's a great website called electronicinfo.ca. CA is for, for Canada. So it's, um, you, or you could just Google e-info, e-info for Canada. Um, and this is all of the, uh, a guide to Ontario, Ontario universities. So finding programs, finding universities, how to apply, it leads you through the process. Um, Another great website, um, if you're searching for, for um, universities in British Columbia, that's another t- 
top location. A lot of students want to go to Vancouver or just BC. Um, you can put in education, educationplannerbc.ca. So it's educationplannerbc.ca. And that is um, for all universities in British Columbia. Um, and then the last website I'll, I'll tell you about, um, th- if you're looking for the East Coast, uh, some of the maritime um, uh, locations or, um, let's say, Halifax, um, the Association of Atlantic Universities. But if you just, that's the name of the association. The website is AtlanticUniversities.ca. So great overviews, and it can, um, you can dig deeper into your research about these, these op- your options. Awesome. And you are right. That is totally cool that you can kind of build your own parameters or build your list according to parameters and see what pops up as highest rankings yeah. because, yeah, the, the challenge That's the way it with should rankings. be. Rankings it should is. be based on you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not on someone else's idea of what they think is important because that may not be important to you at all. Exactly. Um, so, what, you know, one of the things traditionally and historically that has been really nice about the Canadian schools is that there haven't been essays. So the application has been fairly straightforward, um, much more European in that way, in that it's really, you know, you fill out the information, you say where you, what you want to study, and, you know, they look at your grades and your, um, your courses and your test scores and, and, they make their decision based on that. But I've gotten the sense that that's shifting a little bit. So what can you tell us about the application process? Sure. You're, you're right. Um, so most programs of study at most universities in Canada do not require essays or letters of recommendation. Um, it's an application, some questions to, to respond to, um, and, and your transcript. Um, but that is changing a bit, and there are more universities that are requiring additional material. Um, maybe it's uh, short supplemental essays, or there are some that are requiring a, a video interview. Um, but these materials are typically required after the student submits their application. So it's a follow-up, and it's totally dependent on the program of study that the student applies for. So the University of Toronto, in general, might not require all students to submit these additional materials, but if you apply to a certain program, you could. The key piece of advice here, it is more important than ever for applicants to keep a really close eye on their email and to respond promptly. Because like I said, almost always this comes after the application. Um, But still in general, I would say the application process is a lot easier, more straightforward than it is for the U.S. Um, A lot more predictability to it. You can find out if there's specific uh, requirements for different programs of study um, for international students as well. Um, Another difference, Deadlines are typically later than the U.S., um, but it does take longer to process that application. So, you know, some rolling schools in the U.S., you might get a response in four weeks. That's probably not going to be the case in Canada. So you don't want to wait too long to apply. Um, but typically the opening is around October, and that would be on the early end. But if you can aim around you know, December, January, you would still be um, way ahead of the game uh, for applying to Canada. Uh, one other big piece of, of, of difference here, I think Canada is definitely more favorable in their review, um, for, particularly for students that have had a rocky beginning in high school. So if ninth grade was not your best year, 
Canada could be totally okay with that. Um, a lot of universities just consider 11th and 12th grade grades um, or 10th through 12th, and there's some that even only consider 12th grade, so they ask for that first semester of 12th grade um, and seeing what courses you signed up for. So they're, pr- they're a lot more forgiving, I would say, for those students that were maybe the, the late bloomers. That's super interesting. I was not aware of that, and... and um, would you, and that information would be found on the school's websites or yeah. is that sort of, so they do, they're very straightforward in letting you know what they're going to consider when they read your they applications. They are very straightforward in what they will, what they will consider. Um, they spell it out for you. There's always a section for international students by country, um, for each school. So, um, it, you have to, you have to do a little bit of digging cause you know, not all, not every school is the same. Um, mm-hmm. but I would say the the process is not as um, mysterious as it is here in the U.S. Uh, for some schools. Got it. All right. Well, this is super helpful information. And I think just to go um, through what you shared, so McLean's, M-A-C-L-E-A-N-S dot com, right? No, dot C-A. C-A for dot Canada. C-A, sorry, all right, so McLean's, M-A-C-L-E-A-N-S dot C-A is your online university guide. And then um, there was electroninfo dot C-A, educationplannerbc dot C-A, and Association of Atlantic Universities dot C-A. So those are all great resources um, for listeners, hopefully whose um, who, whose interest is now piqued in the idea of at least taking a look at what's available in Canada. Um, there are a lot of options, and um, it's not too far from home for many of our listeners, I think. So, um, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this great information. Absolutely, Beth. Thank you. All right. Uh, we are going to go on a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be lis- answering your questions. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I am really excited to welcome my colleague who frequently joins me for these listener Q&As, Shannon Vasconcellos, who's a former financial aid officer at Boston University and at Tufts University. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. So unlike the last time you were on, we actually have two full segments today to go through all of the different listener questions that have come in. And I want, we have a lot, so I want to get right to it. And I'm going to start with a question for you. Comes to us from Stephanie, who asks, does my child have to live on campus if we live within commuting distance? So many colleges say freshmen must live on campus, but my son would prefer to be at home and we'd prefer to save the room and board costs. Yeah, totally understandable, and you can probably, Stephanie, get exempted from the requirement um, if the school your, your son ends up attending does have that on-campus requirement. So just to step back a, a bit, a lot of schools do require freshmen to live on campus, and they will tell you that it, it kind of it helps everybody. It helps students adjust to college life and kind of create this support system on campus. It helps the students become part of a campus community. Um, They've actually done studies that show that students who live on campus are more likely to persist in their education and actually graduate than students who live off campus. Uh, Some schools will also cite safety reasons about living on campus. So a lot of colleges do want their students to live on campus. You know, it helps the students themselves and it, it helps the school by creating kind of this more vibrant campus community where students are engaged rather than just showing up for classes and then going home. Um, well, like you'll find at more commuter campuses, they like to have a campus where, where students are doing stuff on campus, living, working, participating in activities. So that's why colleges have these on-campus living requirements. Um, but they will all have some sort of appeal process to be let out uh, of that requirement. And living with parents who live within a commutable distance to campus, and every college may define, you know, what a commutable distance is differently. It might be 20 miles, 30 miles, something like that. But living with parents close by will generally be one of the kind of automatic exemptions where they will let you out of that on-campus living requirement. Um, living off-campus with, like, four friends to save money in an apartment is less likely to be exempted. Um, you can, for, so for those, in, in that situation, we're trying to save money by living with a whole bunch of people in an off-campus apartment. You can always, again, appeal the on-campus living requirement, try to get exempted to save some money, but that is... Um, it's kind of a trickier case. You may or may not be approved, but living at home with your parents, as long as they're close by, is almost always approved. All right. Hey, and I think I have got a question for you, Beth. Um, This student is asking, my college counselor is telling me that I should only apply to four or five schools. 
I have 25 on my list. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why shouldn't I apply to all of them? That's the challenge to you, Beth. Why shouldn't she apply to 25 schools? So many reasons, Um, and I would really identify four main ones. Um, The first reason is that you really need to be able to identify why every school on your list is on your list, and when you have as many as 25 or even, quite honestly, as many as 15, um, sometimes as many as 12, it becomes much more difficult to say, well, I like this school for these three main reasons and have them be reasons that are specific to that school. So the place where you start is with 25 schools, maybe. You know, maybe that's on your initial list of schools to consider, but you really need to be winnowing that down. And the other reasons why, so the second reason is that Generally speaking, when students are applying to that many schools, it's because they are unable to let go of all of those reaches where they know they probably don't have a great shot, but they want to take a chance. I'm only going to apply to college once. Why shouldn't I see? Um, The answer is that getting back all of those no's can be truly, and I really am not exaggerating here, devastating. I have seen it happen. My colleagues have seen it happen when we have not been able to persuade students to make better choices, winnow it down. I'm certainly not suggesting that you suggesting that you shouldn't have reaches. Um, I believe in reaching. It's a good idea. Reach for two, three schools that where you they are just great fits. They fit all the criteria that you've established for yourself as to a great college where you can study your area of focus, where they have lots of interesting organizations and uh, activities that you can do related to that, where you feel comfortable on campus, um, where, you know, this is just a place where you know that you could thrive. There's no reason why you can't have two or three of those reaches that that fit that description on there. But more than that is really just now you're just asking to get a bunch of no's. And we actually did a show that you can find in our archives about why statistically, you know, it, it's not you're not improving your odds. You are. And then we, that brings me actually to reason number three, which is the amount of extra work that is often required with these applications. I've yet to have a student want to apply to 25 schools or more or 15 even where the schools didn't require tons of additional writing. You know, they're not choosing the schools where it's just a simple like, oh, well, you just send off the application. You don't have to do anything extra. It's always the schools with a lot of additional writing. And it is very difficult to do a great job on that many applications. And so another reason why you might want to be more like five or six or seven or maybe 10 applications is because then you can really make those essays the best that they can be rather than, you know, just kind of dashing off. To apply to that many schools is basically a full-time job. And I don't know anybody who works a full-time job and goes to high school at the same time. So, uh, you know, there's that reason. And then the fourth reason is the amount of money involved in applying to that many schools. And again, I know sometimes parents say, well, she's only going to apply to college once or he has his heart set and he can't seem to narrow the list down. But I mean, when you're talking about 
possibly upwards of 75 to 80 to $100 an application, I mean, that's a lot of money. And okay, maybe money is no object, but it's still a bad reason. You know, maybe you want to knock money off, then fine. There are still three good reasons why you wouldn't apply to that many schools. The students who do the best in this process, and I've been doing this work for many years, more than I probably want to mention, but um, are the ones who have a focused list where they can describe why every school is on that list and um, they are taking really good care to do the best possible job on each one of those applications. And I see the odds decrease with every application they add over, let's say, 12. Mm. Um, That's the max I see students doing well. And the results always, I've yet to have a kid go, I just want to take a shot. And then it comes back and they actually got in. It it just, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So that's Mm -hmm. why. Four reasons why you should not apply to all of them. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, All right. Next question for you. And actually, it's a really good one. I thought it was very interesting um, because to me, I think it sounds like not true. But you tell me. Pat asks, we just attended attended a financial meeting where we were told that the money we have been diligently saving in our kids 529 plan will count against merit aid. Can you speak to the accuracy of this statement? I can, and you were correct, Beth, that this statement is 100% inaccurate. Um, That's what I thought. So, yeah, (laughs) you knew more than this financial planner. I am very impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so schools basically have two pots of money in general. Most schools have merit aid to award and need-based aid. So need-based aid is based on your family's finances and having significant savings can affect need-based financial aid, though it actually has a pretty limited effect. Um, The financial aid formula expects you to be able to contribute at most 6% of assets to college each year, and it's usually less than that. So basically, for every $10,000 you have saved, it might cost you at most $600 of financial aid. Um, So it's a very small percentage. You know, having that $10,000 in savings helps you pay for college much, much more than the maybe $600 loss of financial aid hurts you. So I always, always encourage people to save. Um, And that limited loss of financial aid only applies to need-based financial aid. Pat, in this question, um, asked about the 529 counting against merit aid, and that's what it absolutely does not. Merit aid is based on, you know, your child's academic, Record sometimes their extracurricular record, and it's a recruitment tool. It's awarded to students that the school really wants to enroll the most, and they don't care how much money you make or what you have saved. Um, that's actually a, a, a criticism of merit aid in general, mm-hmm. that it actually goes disproportionately to wealthier people, uh, you know, people who can afford tutors and test prep and things like that. Um, the wealthier people are getting more merit aid, so... No, your 529 will have zero effect on merit aid, so you don't have to worry about that, Pat. And I would say just to make kind of a step back and take, to make a larger point is you definitely want to be careful in terms of who you take advice from about the college process. Um, you know, this 
person got bad advice from a particular financial advisor. And I think actually a lot of these questions that we answer are based on things that people have heard from somebody, from an advisor, from a friend, from a neighbor. Um, And a lot of time we're really kind of debunking myths. So before you make decisions about the college process based on some advice that you've been given, you know, make sure that you verify the, the information. Make sure that the source actually has expertise about the college process, whether it be, you know, a college consultant like we are or an actual admissions or financial aid officer at a college. You just want to verify the information before you make, you know, serious decisions like not saving for college because of it. Um, so just be careful. That's the, the larger piece of advice. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, there are plenty of people out there doing great work on this front, but often I think that that advice is followed by, but we have this great thing that you could purchase that will help you, (laughs) right? (laughs) And... we, we actually do programming as part of our corporate benefit around financial aid myths that are too good to be true and, and, uh, and tackle a lot of these. But, yeah, if someone's trying to sell you something based on what they're telling you about the college, <laughs> uh, how colleges are looking at something, make sure they really know what they're talking about. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty. So I have a question for you, Beth. That rings the bell for me. And the question is, what is better, an A in a college prep course or a B in an honors or AP course? So, Shannon, I'm not even going to answer this. What I'm going to say is that we <laughs> get asked this question so frequently that it was the title of the very first podcast we ever did three years ago. <laughs> so if you go to our archives on either Voice America or on iTunes, the very first podcast that we did, we tackled this question in the very first segment. So go check it out. The archives are amazing. There's all kinds of great information in there. And I couldn't, I think we spent 15 minutes or maybe we spent eight minutes talking about it. I think that first podcast might have had four segments. Um, But go check it out. There's a really great answer there. Perfect. Okay. Alrighty. Should I ask you another one, Beth? Um, yeah, let's do one more of yours and then we can always go back okay. to those. All right. So this comes from Jack. My son needs to fly to California for, I wonder if my son Jack submitted this. Hmm. Cause I think California is <laughs> a little far. My son needs, yeah, exactly. My son needs to fly to California for school. Can we get financial aid to cover his flights? Um, so you may be able to. So colleges determine maximum financial aid eligibility using this number called their cost of attendance. And the cost of attendance includes estimates for tuition fees, room and board, books and supplies, as well as personal and travel expenses. So travel expenses is incorporated into that cost of attendance. So most schools will, by default, include kind of a generic average cost of travel based on all of their students, you know, those from far away and from, uh, you know, more locally based students. So if you need to spend more than the average student on travel, you can request a budget increase uh, to account for, you know, the extra cost of those cross-country flights. Um, So you would request an increase from the financial aid office, you know, writing them a letter saying, hey, could you increase my cost of attendance budget? Um, based on the additional travel costs I will have because I'm traveling cross country and document for them, you know, what the cost of the flights will be. Uh, and it's at the aid's office discretion to 
either approve or deny the request, or they could approve it in some kind of modified way. You know, you might be asking for, you know, enough money to cover three round trips, but they'll only approve two. Um, So something like that might happen as well. Now, a school could approve your request and increase your budget to allow for the extra travel costs, but very few schools will actually give you grant money to cover those extra expenses. When they approve a budget increase, basically what they're doing is allowing you to borrow additional student loans to cover the cost. Um, You can only borrow student loans up to, again, that total cost of attendance budget that the school sets. You can't, you know, they don't allow you to borrow unlimited student loans. They want to kind of verify that you're actually using these for educational expenses. That's why the amount of loans you can borrow is capped at that cost of attendance budget. So you can appeal for a budget increase. It will allow you to borrow more, but a school is usually not going to to give you free money. They're not going to give you grant money in most cases. Occasionally, a very generous school might uh, give you extra grant money to cover the cost of travel, so it never hurts to ask. But in most cases, they're just increasing the budget to allow you to borrow more. Yeah, I think this points up a really good, um, or this brings up a really good point, which is if it's going to cost, you need to think about those additional costs when you're applying to college, right? That if you're going to have to fly to campus um, every time you go, that adds up and might mean that a school that requires a flight maybe shouldn't end up on your list. I mean, Uh it's not necessarily a definitive reason not to apply, but if you know that costs are a concern, it's certainly something to consider. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go to a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to answer more of your questions. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back. We're answering your questions. And Shannon, I think you have a question for me. I sure do. And I actually have two that came in that are very similar, so I think you can tackle them together. Clearly, college applications are on the mind. So the first question yes. is, when are deadlines? My son is a junior. When does he need to apply? And then we got an additional application that says, when should I start working on the college applications? Right. So I think we lost, we got a little garbled there, but the first part was when our application deadlines. Um, So yeah, these do really go together. Um, If you are a junior, now is absolutely the time to start working on applications. But really, what I encourage working on right now, especially if you're applying to colleges that are on the common application, um, is to start working or on a type of common application is to start working on the main essay. You, generally speaking, the main essay topics are out. They have been out. Um, even if the application isn't open yet, um, you can usually be working on at least one main essay. Um, most application deadlines, most applications um, are due you know, starting around November 1. So a lot of early action deadlines, a lot of priority deadlines, uh, a lot of early decision deadlines are on November 1. It's kind of the witching hour in our offices. Um, If April 15th is the witching hour for tax CPAs and people who do taxes, (laughs) November 1 is ours. Um, And then they generally follow. So the University of California opens their application on November 1, and they accept applications all the way through to November 30th, and then it closes. So you have a, week, a month to submit applications to the University of California. Um, there are some schools who will open their application very early. They might open it in the summer. Uh, and usually those are, not always, but usually those are rolling admission schools where they're going to start accepting applications and um, making decisions fairly early on, but the application itself is going to be open for a long time. It may be open through the spring and into the summer. It sort of just depends on how many applications they're getting, how many students they're looking to admit, how many students they're yielding, so how many that they're admitting actually are accepting their offer of admission. Um, and there are a handful of schools with priority deadlines as early as October 15th. University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill comes to mind. Um, and uh, actually, if you're looking to the UK, Oxford and Cambridge, their deadline is in October, but the vast majority don't start to, um, of deadlines are not until November 1 and after November 1. Um, It's going to vary from college to college. So unfortunately, as with pretty much everything in this world, I can't really say, you know, definitively, you know, the earliest it will be is X. So, um, what you want to do is, is research your different schools that are on your list and take a look at what their deadlines are, create a spreadsheet for yourself so that you can see um, when the official deadlines are for their different application uh, options. Schools will sometimes have as many as three or four different types of ways in which you can apply and different deadlines associated with those. Um, 
but you know, if you're a junior, I would say again, the summer is absolutely the time just to be finalizing your list, working on that main essay, looking for additional writing that might be required and making sure that you are working on the prompts for this coming application year. I have seen it happen where a school didn't update their essay prompt uh, yet, and students started working ahead, and they were working on an essay prompt from the previous year, and then the school changed it. And so that work that they had done was no good. So you want to make sure that the essay prompt is up to date. If it's not clear from the website, you can always call and ask. Uh, and hopefully they will be able to give you an answer. Occasionally they'll say, I'm not sure if our prompts are changing, but we'll know by X date. And then at least you'll know when to check back. All right. Oh, and actually just because you uh, you just made me think of it. So the the supplemental essay prompts may or may not be out, but the common app prompt, main common app essays prompts we know, correct? Because they didn't change from last year. Exactly. Um, and nor right. did the um, uh, the essay prompts for the University of California system did not change. Um, they have actually come out and officially said that. So there are definitely things to be worked on um, right now yeah. um, for, for students. Yeah, and we actually did a great blog post last summer that you can still find on our blog called Which Common App Essay is Best for Me? Um, we actually created a little quiz that you can take. You can link right from our blog, which is blog.getintocollege.com. Search for which common app essay is best for me. And you can take a little quiz that leads you through um, the various common app um, essay topics and will help you pick the one that might be best for you. So just a little plug for, for that great um, blog post and quiz. It's a really fun little quiz to take. It might help get you started. Uh, on working on that essay. I love it. And then we've also done some segments recently on the show. And um, if you, again, go to our archives where we're talking about how do you get started on the Common App essay? I actually think we did that in last week's um, episode. So check it out. Yeah, All right, that, I, I have a question for you. that the hardest part, getting started. Yes. <laughs> Once you get rolling, I, it, it, it tends to, to kind of flow smoothly. But getting started, it can be intimidating to look at that blank piece of paper. Absolutely. Absolutely. It can be. And and the beauty, too, of starting early um, and getting over that hump is that then you leave more time and room to edit. And then that also leaves you more time and space to edit when you're working on the supplemental pieces. If you've already knocked the main one off the list, now you have more time and attention to give to those smaller writing pieces, which are, by the way, just as important, sometimes more so. Uh, Okay. I have a question for you from Divya. My daughter is finishing her sophomore year. Is it too early to apply for scholarships? I would say it's too early to apply for most scholarships, but it's definitely not too early to start thinking about and researching scholarships. Uh, we talked a lot about it a lot on the show, but to emphasize the point that the number one source of scholarship money is the colleges themselves. So the best strategy to maximize scholarship funding is to apply to schools that are really going to want you, schools where you're going to be above average, where you're going to stand out from the crowd. So as your daughter, you know, kind of wraps up sophomore year, enters junior year, which is really the big year for researching colleges and deciding on that that final list of schools she's going to apply to, I would say make sure she's considering a wide range of schools in terms of their selectivity and that that final list of schools she applies to includes at least a couple 
safety schools, you know, where she's really going to stand out and is most likely to be offered scholarship funding. That's really the, the number one strategy to maximize scholarships. Uh, and that's something to really start thinking about now for sure. Uh, but then there are thousands of scholarships out there from private organizations that you can take to any school. Really, again, the vast majority of those you don't apply for in senior year, so you've still got plenty of time. But there could be a few out there that have earlier applications um, or application deadlines. So now is a great time to start looking. You know, you can run a few basic web searches. Um, scholarships.com is one good website to check out. Also, talk to your high school guidance counselor um, about any kind of local community-based scholarships you can pursue. Again, most of them you're not going to be able to apply for yet, but it's a great idea to see what's out there, see what's required to apply for these scholarships. You know, sometimes it's an essay or they might require a certain number of hours of community service or maybe a special science project. You know, it could really be anything. So it's really great to know about those requirements well in advance so you can prepare for them. You know, get all the requirements done and mm-hmm. make yourself into the perfect candidate for the scholarship by the time it comes to apply for the scholarship during senior year, as opposed to, you know, just finding out about a scholarship a week before the applications due. If you find you're short of some requirement, you really don't have time to get it done at that point. So now is a great time to look for scholarships, research requirements and deadlines and all of that good stuff. But most of them you don't apply for until senior year. Love it. Great advice. Um, okay. All right. What do you have for me? I've got one from Andrew who asks, are private high schools always better than public high schools? And I imagine that always word is a bit problematic. Yes. If you listen to this show at all, you will know that we, uh, the only time I say always is that we always, we never say always <laughs> on this show, which is there is zero way that you could ever say this. And um, I wouldn't even say that private high schools are better than public high schools. Uh, And the reason for that is because the best high school is the best high school for your student. And every student is different. And for those of you parent listeners who have more than one child, you probably know that even your two children could be very different and that what might be perfect for one child might not be a good fit at all for another. Um, And as an example, I would say my brother and I, my brother's 10 years younger than I am, uh, ended up at two totally different high schools. He was super into athletics and he ended up at a school that really allowed him to showcase his um, talents and and play on competitive teams. And I was really a more academically minded kid. And I um, ended up at a place that really suited me. And um, in both cases, those were private schools, although um, they were very different private schools. And we also had friends who had different focuses and different goals who went to public schools. So um, I can think of a lot of great public schools, a lot of great private schools. I, th- I can think of schools that maybe students went to that weren't the best fit for, for them that were public and that weren't the best fit for them that were private. Um, yep. So my, w- when you think about the right high school for you as a student or as a parent, if you think about the right high school for your child, I would be um, really focusing on what are the opportunities available at this school that really are going to play well with my students' 
personality, interests, and skill set. So if you have a really outgoing child who's a big leader, uh, it may be that that local public school might have the most opportunities for your child to be involved, be a leader, show off that skill set, have lots of friends, and they might feel more stifled in a small private school environment. Um, Another student might really thrive in that smaller environment um, because they might get lost in the larger school. And those are just two small examples of how you need to be thinking about your individual student first and and then think about what school is the best fit rather than, well, that's a great school then that's definitely where I'm going to spend extra money to send my child or we're going to buy a house in that neighbor, in that town because that school system is known to be really excellent. You know, you really, um, I know this is not a small thing. My son is going off to high school. Um, he, in fact, steps up, which is what they call it here, <laughs> on Friday. Um, and I am in a town with uh, what is known to be a very good school system, but I also did look at private options for him and ultimately decided that for now, I think this is the best fit um, based on the things he enjoys doing and the things he enjoys studying and the way he um, interacts with school. Um, And that's what I would encourage parents out there to do as well. Shannon, I think that we have time for one more question for you and let me get there um uh i'm hoping that this is a somewhat quick answer actually so it might be perfect and this comes to us from craig who asks what's the difference between a subsidized loan and an unsubsidized loan Yes, I think I can do this pretty quickly. So they're both government loans. You will likely see one or both of them on a financial aid award letter. The difference is that the subsidized direct loan is interest-free while the student is enrolled in school. It doesn't begin accruing interest until after the student ceases enrollment, either by graduating or by dropping out. Uh, And the unsubsidized direct loan begins accruing interest immediately as soon as the loan is borrowed. So it will be accruing interest for the four years that the student is in college. Um, Now, before everyone says, you know, great, give me the subsidized one, that sounds better. (laughs) It is better. (laughs) But the other difference is that you you don't get to choose. The subsidized loan is need-based. You have to show need according to the financial aid calculations to be awarded the subsidized loan. The unsubsidized loan is not need-based. Everybody can get that one. Um, just to make things a little bit tricky, they, they cap the subsidized loan at a smaller amount um, than what your total aggregate uh, or your total yearly limit is. So for a freshman student, the most they can borrow between both loan programs is $5,500. Um, the most they can get subsidized, even if they're very, very needy, is $3,500. So a lot of people will see a $3,500 subsidized loan, $2,000 unsubsidized loan on an award letter to get them to the $5,500 total. And that was longer than I hoped. That I hope I, I squeezed <laughs> that answer in there. Everything more complicated than you want it to be. I know. And well, that's why we're here. That's why we do this podcast every week. Um, And I'm back next week hosting. And we're going to be talking about bargain hunting for textbooks and dorm supplies, uh, searching for colleges in the United Kingdom. So this week we talked about Canada. Next week we're going to talk about the U.K., 
And then an interesting one, transitioning back home after the first year of college. We know that most people who are listening are in the throes of the college process. And we also know we have some longtime listeners who might be interested in some hey, I'm heading off to college, or hey, my child is coming back. And um, one of my colleagues who has students who have transitioned home in his own home is going to talk to us about that. If you have questions that you would like to see answered on the show, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. I think we've put in a lot of plugs for our archives and our blog today. Um, The archives are on Voice America. They're also available on iTunes. Uh, You can find the blog at blog.getintocollege.com. We're also on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, And we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.